on this episode of Launch Stories. You do see a couple of big successes initially coming out of the UK and also Netherlands, and they created a, a new generation of, of operators that have become more ambitious. And you get also angel investors, venture capital firms who, who have shown good returns in Europe, so they're able to raise their next fund and their next fund and so forth. So that's also this accumulating effect that's now kind of finally coming uh, to fruition. Welcome to Launch Stories, the global startup podcast. I'm your host, Zoltan Vardy. The Launch Stories podcast gives you a taste of what it takes to launch a global startup. Listen to founders share their personal ups and downs, their professional wins and losses, and the lessons they've learned along the way to building an international company. You'll also hear from accelerators and investors that support entrepreneurs along their journey around the world and what they think is the recipe for startup success. So join me on Launch Stories, get inspired and learn the ingredients of a successful global business. My guest today is Yuram Weingarda, founder and CEO of DealRoom.co, a global data platform that provides information on startups, innovation ecosystems, and investment strategies. Top-tier venture capital firms, tech companies, and consulting groups use DealRoom software and insights to discover and connect with the world's most promising companies. Before launching the company in 2013, Yuram worked as an investment banker in New York and London, advising media, telecom, and internet companies on nearly two dozen deals worth a combined $10 billion. In today's discussion, Yuram and I will talk about the trends that are shaping the European startup ecosystems, how startup investing has evolved and is likely to evolve in the future, and what he learned from his journey to becoming a startup founder. So let's listen to Yoram's launch story. Hello, Yoram. It's a pleasure to meet you, and thank you for accepting our invitation to be here on this podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm really excited to speak to you, Yoram, because we actually share a bit of a common past. I don't know if you know this uh, in the media industry. You on the investment banking side, me more on the operational side. So it was during the the heyday of the 2000s. I was working for a company called SBS Broadcasting, uh, a European TV group based actually in the Netherlands. And uh, it was bought by two big private equity firms, KKR and Premira. And later I became the CEO of, of a Central European Operations for what eventually became the combined company of SBS Broadcasting and the German broadcasting group Prozib and Sadeins Media, which KKR and Premira had merged at some point. And, you know, I look back at those times with a bit of nostalgia. I feel like the global business environment was fantastic. Media was red hot. There was so much money in the market. There were so many opportunities. I'm curious, what do you remember about this period as it relates to your broader investment banking background and, and a more personal level? I think my investment banking background, uh, it shaped me on a lot of levels, but I, I still remember coming straight out of university and getting into investment banking was like a dream come true. Everybody wanted to get in, but very quickly I noticed it was uh, also very hard work, of course. What's the saying goes, if you don't come in to work on Saturday, don't even bother coming in on Sunday, right? Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, a much worse one that I heard in New York was about analysts uh, is that they are like mushrooms, is that you keep them in the dark and you feed them. <laughs> <laughs> wow, sounds like a great, uh, great pitch for a job, especially in this uh, great resignation period, right? Where they're trying to hold on to people. Uh, hand and foot. Well, I, I do recall it was, I mean, obviously investment banking by nature is, you know, very project-based, right? So when you're in the middle of something, you're working literally hundred hours a week. Is there anything, any particular deal at that time that sticks out for you as like a really good encapsulation of what you experienced? Yeah, that's a great question. I think probably one of the private equity deals 
that I worked on. It was a buyout of a candy factory. And it was maybe the first deal that I worked on that we, that we actually successfully closed. Because as a banker, you work also on a lot of deals that don't end up. That like yeah, nothing happens. That, hap- that happens most of the time, actually. So this one, and I remember the end of the deal, we went into a data room and it was like a physical data room. So we, you know, we went to some kind of uh, industrial park uh-huh. and uh, go into a few doors and it's just filled with these folders and you're just asked to just, you know, go check if everything looks all right. I didn't even know what I was supposed to look at. <laughs> well, you're dating yourself here a little bit. I mean, can you imagine a physical data room in this, in this day and age? Yeah, no, it sounds crazy. <laughs> and so what did you find in that data room? Nothing at all. <laughs> And a second great example, I worked on the IPO of a Belgian cable company, a big IPO. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there, it's also, it was a tradition that just before the IPO, you're actually supposed to go to the printer and see if it was printed correctly. So you're like 4 a.m. in the middle of a big printer factory, see, looking at the prospectus. That's uh, something to remember. And for some reason, all these deals end up closing at 4 in the morning, right? Yeah. But nothing happens like by 8 p.m. so you can go home for dinner. It's always uh, every last uh, T is crossed and I is dotted. Well, listen, we're going to get back to uh, how you move from corporate finance uh, to eventually launching your current business, Deal Room, in a moment. Before we do that, though, I wanted to fast forward to today and discuss some bigger trends in the market the deal room serves, which is basically the world of startups, uh, tech um, companies, venture capital, and so on, and particularly in Europe, right, which is your area of strength. You know, we know Europe is is one continent. And speaking as, a, as an American, you know, often that's forgotten, right? People think there's like a United States of Europe, when in fact, it is very different countries, different languages, multiple local startup ecosystems, but certainly healthy venture capital climate. How would you categorize the various startup ecosystems of Europe? And which ones are the most developed? Which ones would you classify as emerging and, and so on? I still count the UK as part of Europe, even though it's not in the EU. And clearly London is like the epicenter of the European tech ecosystem. I think it accounts to about a third of of Europe by most measures, like value created, like number of unicorns, whatever you you look at. So effectively, a third of the European startup world is effectively coming from the UK. Yeah. And even within there's probably London. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And London is the center, but around it, you also have Oxford, Cambridge, which become like increasingly important. Like I think the startup ecosystem is becoming slowly more scientific. That's another topic. So that's kind of where also most of the venture capitalists are based. But then you have these kind of emerging ecosystems like Paris. Paris is probably one of the fastest growing ones at the moment, thanks to also input from the government, but also a big culture change. I think in the last 10 years, France has completely changed its attitude towards entrepreneurship. And that's a great example for big parts of Europe. And Berlin has been a big ecosystem for a long time since kind of the Zamware brothers launched their eBay copycat. Rocket internet, right? Yeah, rocket internet. But before that, they launched Alando, which was like an eBay uh, And they sold it in the end to Alando as well, uh, to eBay. Then I think afterwards they launched rocket internet. Uh, But then, yeah, out of that, a lot of uh, kind of positive network effects, spillover effects, uh, resulting in other successful VCs, other successful startups. So a whole new generation there of entrepreneurs started. And now it's like a big ecosystem. Then you have Amsterdam that's 
also kind of up and coming together with Scandinavia. Eastern Europe is, I would say, very hot and like next to Paris, maybe one of the fastest growing regions, especially Romania and Estonia and yeah, the rest of the Baltics, uh, but also Poland and other parts of Eastern Europe. Spain is doing quite well. And then Italy is kind of the the laggard so far. And they, I mean, I think they are aware of it, but I think they will come around and catch up eventually with the rest of Europe. Manana, manana, right? Sometime, someday they'll, <laughs> they'll catch up <laughs> well, with what's going on. Oh, that's Spanish. Although that's Spanish, I know. But, you know, yeah, the Southern European uh, joie de vivre, right, is, is always, uh, you would think somewhere the, the polar opposite of the, the startup mentality. Yeah, but it's fascinating to think of where those differences come from. Italians will often point to like regulatory burden. Mm -hmm. And actually in Germany, there's a lot of bureaucracy as well. So it's also a cultural thing. So it's fair to say that sort of the, the top three European startup ecosystems are London, Berlin and Paris yeah. in some combination. And then you've got sort of a number of other markets, Amsterdam, you mentioned, parts of Spain, Stockholm, Scandinavia that are kind of in that next round. You know, one of the parts of the world that fascinates, I think, a lot of people as it relates to startup ecosystems is the Baltic states, right? You mentioned Estonia in particular. Just an interesting statistic I read, the three countries of the Baltics, right? Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania are basically have a combined population of 6 million people, right? So it's kind of like a mid-sized European capital. And these three countries have produced a combined 12 unicorns, a majority of those from Estonia, I believe, including companies like Skype, Wise, Bolt. These are all obviously very well-known kind of consumer brands, um, but a bunch of business-to-business -business companies as well. Why have the Baltics been so successful in building and nurturing such global startup successes? I think when answering this type of question, we have to come to terms with randomness. Like I, I believe <laughs> we can overanalyze. So it's just dumb luck. <laughs> yeah, it is in part dumb luck. I'm sure you can point to certain aspects of definitely being favorable. But I think that once you get a few successes, that can then quickly, like happened in Berlin, spill over to more success. Success breeds success and it inspires people and teaches them they can think big. And I think that if someone from your small country wins the gold medal in the Olympics, that inspires a new generation of people to do the same. Absolutely. I think what the term I've heard is the flywheel effect, where you basically have, for instance, companies like Skype, which by the way, is like 15 years old, at least, right? It was kind of late 2000s. It drives vision for the entire ecosystem. So if they did it, then we can do it as well. Then you get some of these really big exits from these companies. Those entrepreneurs then invest back into the ecosystem. So you get more money, early stage companies. So it is like this revolving door or wheel, I guess, that drives this type of growth. Totally. So by now, there have been enough successes that result that exactly you get this effect that you just mentioned like and yeah you get a bunch of people who have done it before you have generation of investors who know what it means to back a startup and they're getting used to also offering types of venture capital terms to startups that you also see in the u.s and if you don't have that, you get what you do see in Italy, for example, is that startup entrepreneurs, they don't know any better and they give up like 25% or 50% of their equity to a local angel. And from that moment onward, it becomes almost impossible to attract a good uh, intern. The cap table is basically screwed up for good. Yeah. And that still happens a lot across Europe. Well, one thing you can definitely say, and I know that the data that you put together recently through your State of European Tech Report proves this, is that the European tech sector as a whole is really on fire. Some of the data I read in this latest annual report, I guess you did in cooperation with the venture capital firm Atomico, startups in the region raised $120 billion in funding in 2021, which is three times 
the amount of money they raised in the previous year. There are now $321 billion unicorns, right? So unicorn is a company worth a billion dollars. And about one third of them, so about 98 of them, uh, were minted in last year alone in Europe. So really an amazing uh, growth, uh, 26 companies worth $10 billion or more. What is driving this incredible growth on a, on a pan-European scale? Do you think on a pan-european scale it's exactly those things that you just mentioned about estonia that is actually happening on a european scale you do see a couple of big successes initially coming out of the uk and also netherlands and they created a, a new generation of, of operators that have become more ambitious and you get also angel investors venture capital firms who who have shown good returns in europe so they're able to raise their next fund and their next fund and so forth. So that's also this accumulating effect that's now kind of finally coming uh, to fruition. And it really is the last couple of years, right? Because I was chatting with uh, Nanad Maravats, the uh, the founding partner of DN Capital, uh, one of the more successful uh, early stage investors in the UK. And he was saying back in 2017, 18, he actually wrote a blog about this, about how to this day, US investors have not discovered the value of Europe. Fast forward five years, and now it's almost like Europe is where it's at, right? This is where a lot of the attention is going. Exactly. And that is... Uh... Uh, yeah, both a good thing, but also something to kind of keep an eye on. Like now, I believe something like half of all the capital is coming from outside of Europe and the majority of that from the US, but also a big chunk from Asia. And it's great that they've discovered Europe and that means more capital, more opportunity for, for startups. But you also have to wonder if that's long run healthy for the European ecosystem, if, if half of the capital is coming from outside, because that's definitely not the case in the US, for example. Speaking of the US, the mecca of startup scene and venture capital is Silicon Valley, obviously. And that's what, you know, is driven the whole mentality and the whole uh, mystique of the startup world. What distinguishes European startup and venture capital scenes from what you find typically in Silicon Valley or Silicon Alley in the in the New York? That's another great question. I think in places like Berlin and London and increasingly elsewhere, they do try to emulate as much as possible the US model. Actually, a lot of the European VC firms also get their money, a big chunk of it, from the US. But I think, yeah, they do try to emulate the, the model. And what you also see in Europe is that more of the VC firms get money from uh, government-supported programs, Yeah, which probably does need to happen to get things off the ground. I think it is a good thing that it happens. But overall, I think they take a similar approach to backing startups as they do in the US. You know, I've discovered two distinct differences. I'm wondering if you agree with these. The one is that it feels like in the US, there's just more of a culture of angel investing. So there's a lot more early stage support of businesses that then can mature into companies that actually meaningful VC money finds interesting. Whereas in Europe, I find that there's less natural angel investing going on. That's the one distinction. The other distinction is obviously stems from simply the, the geography of it is in some cases, the Silicon Valley guys have it easy because they within one five mile strip, they've got all this potential investment targets, you know, located in that location, basically speaking in the same language, in the same currency to the same broader market. Whereas in Europe, you've got dozens of different countries, dozens of different languages, dozens of different environments. And I've got to believe that it's it's easier to walk down the street and go to your corner of Starbucks and talk with a founder who literally and figuratively speaks your language versus having to do that, you know, flying from one country to the next. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. For sure. There are more angels. It's also it's coming in Europe, but uh, we're, we're still behind. People are also more entrepreneurial from all sides. So easier to invest, to really think about the upside 
Uh, we're still more conservative in Europe. We try not to be, but it's a stubborn habit, I think, to think about the downside more than the upside. Yeah, people pass deals around. There's probably more syndication also, like you say, among angels and VCs. People, there is more sense of, of community in that sense, is my impression from the US. So let's zoom out a bit. Just look at it from a really a global perspective. What are some of the key trends do you think that have emerged in the eight years uh, since you launched Deal Room as it relates to venture capital and to startup investments? Sort of eight years ago to today, what's happened? And, and what do you see happening from today into the next eight to 10 years? In Europe, yeah? Yeah, we could focus on Europe. It happened also globally, but of course, valuations have increased massively. There is a change also in Europe to focus more on the upside. On the one hand, it became a lot cheaper to launch a startup in terms of building infrastructure and technology, but at the same time, wages have increased massively. So as a result, startups are starting to raise more from the very beginning. What you now see is that a seed round uh, is approaching $3 million. It's quite normal even going much higher and not that long ago in europe a seed round used to be like half a million or something like that well in fact in central and eastern europe there it still is about half a million and i think the difference is you know the technical cost of launching a business has has dropped dramatically i actually launched my first startup business back in the late 90s early thousand i remember just the cost of developing the website was something like 300,000 euros or something like that at that time. And now you can do it for probably 30 euros, just do it yourself website. But I'm certain that cost has been replaced by the cost of programmers, of developers, of people, just as a direct cost of, of building a business. So I think the ticket size has grown for that reason. What about the hot industries? I mean, if you think about what was hot eight, 10 years ago versus what's hot today, what have you seen in terms of evolution? Well, eight years ago feels like a really long time, but you can also think of it in terms of kind of evolution of tech. Like eight years ago, 2014, that's stage we were still mostly focusing on web rather than mm -hmm. uh, mobile. I think the big mm -hmm. mobile revolution came more like 2015, 16. So that's yeah. when you started to see these all these location-based apps. So before that was still a lot of e-commerce and booking sites. So travel was probably the first to really digitize, followed by fashion, these big kind of consumer categories. Then you got the mobile era with companies like Uber and things like that. And then it has kind of evolved more to other apps directly from your phone, including like banking apps and like kind of getting towards bigger categories. And I would say in recent years, what's really looked at as the next thing is more kind of, well, for, for, first you had also now a lot of investment into groceries and so that's, of course, a big wave and kind of really go going more to consumer households in these more asset-heavy businesses, these full-stack business models. So where just a few years ago, you had businesses that could become profitable in a few years and achieve very high margins. And now you see these full-stack models where that actually takes a lot longer. And even after they've gone public, they still need several years to become profitable. So would you say that the investment environment has evolved from very basic consumer needs, you know, shopping, travel, things? like that to more deep tech sort of scientifically driven ideas and investment theses? So the full stack model is now at a stage where the big money is being invested in it. But at the earlier stages, I think that's where we're now seeing a wave of deep tech and more scientific companies. 
You mentioned Oxford and Cambridge being two of world-class university towns as being the source of a lot of innovation. Is that something you're seeing in other markets as well? Yeah, absolutely. There's now a big appetite, I think, for for startups. And, and when I say appetite, I don't mean from investors alone, but also from a talent who, where do they want to work? It's with startups that can make an impact. So it can be, for example, startups that are working on developing new medicine or that want to revolutionize education or want to revolutionize revolutionize the delivery of healthcare or some kind of new climate technology or technology that can fight climate change. Lots of, lots of green tech developments, I know, in the spotlight. Yeah. And those companies are also able often to hire the best talent. And um, I think that a lot of talent is maybe getting a bit tired of working for optimizing uh, the value chain of an e-commerce startup or like a grocery delivery. So it's fair to say that there has been quite a bit of evolution. And as you look to the future, do you see these trends continuing or do you see sort of very hot topics like NFTs, Bitcoin, these kind of things impacting the venture capital landscape? Yeah, on NFTs and this wave, I want to see how that ends up playing out. Yeah, I don't know. I'm personally really conflicted about it. I'm not very much into it myself, I have to admit. I'm kind of in a wait and see mode. But I know for myself that I'm often wrong about these kind of things. So it could very well end up being the uh, next big thing. Well, if you'd like, I can offer you a great deal on a piece of the Brooklyn Bridge. Just for you, special price. <laughs> it's an NFT. It's something that's very valuable, believe me. I find the whole thing a bit ridiculous, to be honest, but that's maybe my conservative investment philosophy. Others apparently see more opportunities there. Let's switch now to your um, the entrepreneur and talk about how you have evolved in your journey from starting basically an investment banking boutique originally with some colleagues from Lehman Brothers, no advisors, to ultimately going on to the more traditional startup path. What prompted you to make this initial move to leave the corporate bubble, so to speak, and to basically create your own business, even if it was more of a traditional service business? I was working at Lehman Brothers, a big investment bank with a lot of hierarchy. I remember that our CEO was like kind of semi-god or demigod. Dick Fuld arrived with a helicopter. When, when he came to the office, it was like a really big deal. It was like the Pope <laughs> came to the office. And then one day, suddenly he was like vilified and like... Devil. This, I mean, they, they used to really, I think uh, he went from being the Pope to having to, to go to confession every day exactly. for, uh, <laughs> for the uh, debacle that Lehman Brothers was. So you obviously were in the middle of that. And I guess you were in a position where you effectively lost your job, I guess, right? Because the company shut down. I actually didn't lose my job because there was another bank that took over our team, but it really gave me a different perspective on institutions and made me take a lot of things a lot less seriously. My colleague, Marco Rotzinek, he started NOAA Advisor on his own and it sounded it looked pretty cool and i was fed up with being a part of a big bank working long hours and i didn't really believe in the dream anymore so it was pretty easy to join that it was much more adventurous so then we were just two people working on deals and it was a lot of fun and also working more directly with entrepreneurs and i had a much bigger impact there i think because i worked with some great entrepreneurs and helped them realize the exit of their company that they worked on for a very long time. So I think I was really part of them realizing their dream and I could really make a big impact on that. 
and uh, some of the people that we advised in those times are still friends. It's like, a, yeah, creates a bond, special, pretty special bond. So I did that for three, four years, but then I was still doing projects, like you say, going from one project to the other. And all around me, I saw entrepreneurs building products that seemed to be much more like something accumulative. So I made a decision to focus on that, to make a jump to being a full-time entrepreneur and a real entrepreneur. I didn't realize how little I knew about building a product so <laughs> i really jumped into deep waters without thinking too much about it but it's just what i wanted to do it went totally natural i didn't uh, think about the risks or anything like that where did the idea for deal room come from as a investment banker, we were using databases and I had firsthand experience with how bad those databases were at discovering startups at the early stage. I think most of the intelligence we had came from hearsay and not from any type of database. So I knew that there was a market for that. So that's where the idea came from. And of course, it, then it took a while to actually make something that could really find those startups. Am I right that you sort of had to pivot at some stage in terms of the original idea? Because my sense from some of the research I'd done is that effectively you had created a platform to connect investors with startups and vice versa. Yeah. And now it's merged more into becoming basically a business intelligence tool. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So initially, the idea was more to create a platform where venture capital and startups could meet. And I was a bit inspired by AngelList mm -hmm. at the time. Uh, but I wanted to do it more on an institutional basis. A lot of people said, yeah, great idea. But then in reality, actually, the real users didn't really want that product. So it turns out that venture capitalists don't want to source deals on a platform. They want to source their own okay. deals doing hard work. And more importantly, good startups don't need a platform to raise money because they get flooded with inbound calls from VCs. So you actually went through a typical startup experience, which is you made an assumption about a problem. You created a product to solve a problem that ultimately you realized didn't exist. Exactly. And so you had to rethink the whole structure, the problem solution connection, which I think is the foundation of any startup to have that connection yeah. and then hopefully to be able to offer that solution at a price that's uh, worth your customer paying and worth you delivering for. Correct. I actually, I didn't even rethink. It was more that things at some point running out of money and something lands on your desk and you think, okay, well, what the hell? I will just do this. <laughs> I went through this phase where it was just opportunistic and that can also go very wrong, I think. It makes you lose your focus a little bit, no? Yeah, I think some entrepreneurs start a startup and then they end up becoming an agency. And we were kind of in that territory also for a while, if I'm being honest. And But one of those clients was the city of Amsterdam, who I could pitch the idea to use our data to measure their startup ecosystem. That was like after one year starting Deal Room, and that became a huge part of our business and kind of core pillar of our growth strategy is that we help governments with uh, measuring their ecosystem and that that allows us to yeah, get an income stream to really grow where we are today. And I guess you've built probably a subscription model, I would imagine, right? Where you're getting ongoing recurring revenues yes. from various sources who are tapping into your database to gather insights and, and information. Yeah. So something that's scalable by nature, right? Yes, by now it is. The thing about a data business is that it takes time to have enough data that you have something to sell. It took us a few years, but now luckily, yeah, we have a subscription model. So all our revenues are either subscribing to our software platform or having our API or using some dashboard toolings. And uh, we're lucky to have most VCs that are active in Europe as our clients. Most of the top tier VC firms are our customers by now. 
if you think back where you were at the start and where you are today, what are the one, two, maybe three things you would recommend that somebody in your shoes now that you would recommend they do perhaps differently than what you did? I made really all the rookie mistakes in the beginning, like really all of them, I think. Number one being when you start, you have to take a really long-term view. You have to think, I'm going to be in this for 10 years at least. So plan based on that. And number one, that means that your co-founder, you need to plan for, do I want to work with this person for 10 years? And even if I do, it might still go wrong. What happens then? What happens after one year and we want to split up? If you're smart, you arrange some kind of vesting agreement mm -hmm. with each other. So that is something from hindsight I would, okay. I would do to avoid a lot of pain. That's one simple rule. The second thing is also in your hiring in the beginning, and this is so difficult, but in your technical architecture, you have to make decisions that you can stand behind for 10 years. You have to lose the, the short-term mindset mindset, I think. But then at the same time, you also want to hustle and have this sense of urgency. So sounds maybe a bit uh, contradictory, but entrepreneurship is full of contradictions and managing those. If you had to summarize your key takeaways, it would be to pick the right co-founders because we're reading between the lines and plan for the long term when it comes to building your business, both when on the product, on the hiring side, across all aspects of your business, because it's probably going to take you longer than you originally thought it would. Exactly. And I'm all for cutting corners and you should cut corners, but except you you have to decide which corners to cut and don't cut corners on things that like talent, picking your co-founder, picking your investors. Those are things where you cannot cut corners. Fantastic. I think that's a great place for us to wrap up our conversation. I think we got some really great insight on the overall startup ecosystem across Europe. Also got an insight into your personal journey as an entrepreneur and some of the things that you took away from your experiences. So thank you very much, Yoram, for joining me today on Launch Stories. And thank you everybody out there who listened to the Launch Stories Global Startup Podcast. We really hope you once again were inspired and learn some of the ingredients of what it takes to build a successful global business. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, leave a review and share it with your friends.